Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Morning, guys. It looks like uh, I have imparted a spirit of joyful weepiness to the community this morning. Um, Guys, this message is very important to me. Not in the quality in which I deliver it, but what we are going to talk about. And it has been so encouraging to see God highlight things that we intend to dive in today. The fact that every knee shall bow. And the fact that love is hopeful. Those are just a couple of things that we're going to be talking about. If you're visiting this morning, thank you so much for being here. My name is Neil. I'm one of the leaders of this vibrant, compelling community. Um, We are continuing on in our series in the Psalms of Summer. Uh, This is a series where we're taking five weeks, and what we're doing is we're taking a psalm and matching it with one of the four community pillars that we really focus on as the family of God. Two weeks ago, Sean did a phenomenal job as he talked talked about us uh, how to revel yeah, the way I think of that word is to like wrestle with, to roll around with, to grab onto, uh, how we ra- revel in the grace of our Savior and Shepherd Jesus Christ, how we can trust in his love and his management. Last week, Nick uh, talked about how we can demonstrate the power of the gospel as we forgive ourselves in repentance and how we extend forgiveness to others as he preached out of Psalm 51, and today I have the incredible privilege of covering our community pillar of proclamation about how we are all invited to share the good news of salvation that comes through belief in Jesus Christ. Today I'm going to be teaching mostly out of Psalm 40. It'll be up on the screens or you can turn in your Bibles. Um, We're going to be covering most of this psalm. This is what it says. This is a psalm of David. Uh, coincidentally, all of our psalms so far have been a psalm of David. Travis, you doing a psalm of David? Nope. All right. Good for you. A uh, man after God's own heart. Wasn't a perfect man. Um, but even in this, in this psalm, it is a messianic psalm. God uses this man to speak about our true Savior. Starting in verse 1, it says, I was patient while I waited for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry for help. I was sliding down into the pit of death, and he pulled me out. He brought me up out of the mud and the mire. He set our feet on a rock, and he gave us a firm place to stand. He gave me a new song to sing. It was a hymn of praise to our God. Many people will see and will fear the Lord. They will put their trust in him. Blessed is the person who trusts in the Lord. They don't trust in proud people, the proud who worship idols. Lord my God, no one can compare with you. You have done many wonderful things. You have planned to do these things for us. There are too many of them for me to talk about completely. You didn't want sacrifice and offerings. You didn't require burnt offerings and sin offerings. You opened my ears so that I could hear you and obey you. And I said, here I am. It is written about me in the book. My God, I have come to do what you want. Your law is in my heart. I have proclaimed to the whole community of those who worship you. I have told them what you have done to save me. Lord, you know that I haven't kept quiet. 
was really hoping this would happen much later in my preach for those of you that know me. Obviously, don't feel awkward. If you're visiting, this doesn't bother me. I hope we can get through this sermon. I actually brought some tissues up. Carrying on, verse 10. I haven't kept to myself that what you did for me. I have spoken about how faithful you were when you saved me. I haven't hidden your love and your faithfulness from the entire community. Lord, do not hold back your mercy from me. May your love and faithfulness always keep me safe. There are more troubles all around me than I can count. My sins have caught up with me, and I can't see any longer. My sins are more than the hairs on my head, and I have lost all hope. Lord, please save me. Lord, come quickly to help me. And in verse 16, but let all those who seek you be joyful and glad because of what you have done. Let those who count on you to save them always say, that the Lord is great, but I am a poor, but I am poor and needy. May the late, the Lord be concerned about me. You are the God who helps me and saves me. You are my God, so do not wait any longer. Not sure if you guys know this about God's word, but it is the simple, most effective, and best source for solving the problems of life. This works at a deeply personal level as well as a macro societal level. And what we try to do from this pulpit partnering with the God is to strengthen and encourage our community in a way through the word of God, partnering with the Holy Spirit to bring radical transformation to the places that we dwell, wander, and live. Um, The problem that we are unpacking today is what does it look like when God gives someone a new song of praise to sing, or more specifically and literally, how does, one God, how does one encounter God in a way that causes them to proclaim his love and faithfulness to people within and outside the body of Christ? And specifically the problem, what, what is it that either scares, stifles, or distracts believers of Jesus from participating in his great commission of proclaiming the good news? Today's sermon is titled, Never stop singing. Our roadmap for today, kind of where we're going to be going, uh, we have four points that I'm going to try to make it through. Uh, The first one is that saved lives sing praise. Secondly, we're going to be looking at what makes our vocal cords cold and quiet. Thirdly, we're going to look at how we can warm up our vocal cords. And lastly, we're going to look at the key of effective proclamation. And in order to illustrate our first point, I need to talk about a phenomenon that has happened in the CrossFit space. For those of you that know, uh, I also lead a CrossFit affiliate out of Brea. It's actually located on Southland Brea's campus. Um, I love helping people with their health and fitness. But um, uh, have any of you had a close friend join an affiliate in the last 10 years? Okay, if you did, you may have noticed that maybe on the weekdays or the weekends or at work or at home or on holidays... Um, in the morning, in the evening, afternoon, and night, they like to talk about CrossFit. <laughs> it's happening right now. Okay, there's been a lot of memes that have mashed up the first two rules of Fight Club and the first two unofficial rules of CrossFit that they always talk about it. You can pull that down. Um, you need to know that we don't actually ever encourage people to do this. I mean, like ever. This is not something what we do. I've, I've been to a lot of CrossFit affiliates. I've trained in Australia. 
uh, in Europe, uh, even in Mexico, at about seven different states across the U.S. I'm connected to a ton of affiliates locally. Most of my friends that trained together ended up opening gyms, and none of us say, tell people. It's, it's never something you do. You see, what happens is people come into our program in a and generally in a, in, in a state of unhealth. There's something, there's, there are some fit people that walk into the gym, but that's really rare. So they come in unhealthy, they have pain with their body, they're low in energy. Honestly, some of their serotonin levels are even low. They're just, they're just lacking joy and euphoria. Um, their life balance is out of whack. And what we do is we teach them and we encourage them. We provide an atmosphere for them to practice the things um, that we're instructing them with. And over time, they start to feel better, they sleep better, their life gets more balanced, they have more energy, they're able to give themselves to the things that they're passionate about more freely. And the natural, unprovoked response is that they tell everybody. It's like, I remember when I first started doing CrossFit at some point, Jacqueline's like, I have no idea what you're talking about and please stop. Like. <laughs> We use a lot of acronyms that just lose people, like AMRAP and things like that. Anyhow, the reason I'm bringing up this point is not for a shameless CrossFit plug. Here's what you need to know. CrossFit does not save lives. Only Jesus can do that. No matter how hard we try or no matter what we do, these bodies will return to the ground and the reality of our life eternal will begin. This is just the short part. Okay, life, right? Our, 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 our souls existing, this is the warm-up. CrossFit might improve the quality of your life a little bit, but it will not save you. But this is what you need to know, and this is the point. The truth is, and the point of this illustration, is that individuals that have been transformed love to speak of their transformation. Altered people love to build altars that speak of what has led to their alteration. Which brings us to our first point. Saved lives love to sing praise. We're going to look at why. That's the most important piece. We're going to look practical. We're going to look kind of just systematically at where. That'll be a really quick point. And then how. This is more of a, just a practical um, advice on how you can do this. But Why? Why do save lives sing praise? Let's look at verses 1, 2, and 5 again. It says, I was patient while I waited for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry for help. I was sliding down into the pit of death, and he pulled me out of it. He brought me out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on the rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. And in verse 5, not just salvation, but he says, Lord my God, no one can... Can, can compare with you. You have done many wonderful things. You have planned. The Lord literally has, he makes plans to do good things for us. There are too many of them for me to speak about completely. And I just want to clarify a few things from this text. I want to look at the two individuals that are involved and let's talk about who these people are. So who is David? We know that he was a king after God's own heart, but we know that he was a sinful man. Who is David but a mere man, whom at the beginning of the psalm is surrounded by his sin, an enemy of God, a man who with little to no effort would contribute to the pain, death, and destruction of the world that God had created. A man who would shortly after this text was written, as Nick mentioned last week, would go on to strategically commit adultery, followed by murder of the faithful husband of the woman he committed adultery with. 
And in Nick's words, he doesn't say this as often as he used to. But a person that is yet to be touched by the radical grace of God is a man that is wicked, depraved, and deserving of death. This is the state we all lived in at one point. Now, who's the person that he's waiting for? Um, The word here for Lord um, explains that this sinful man had called on Jehovah, the one true God, the eternal source of all power, majesty, righteousness, and love, the one whose hands can hold and create creation, the one who is everlasting, the one true and rightful ruler of all, and the one who owed absolutely nothing to the man in the bog. What is David calling about? What is his issue? It says that he was slipping downward into the pit of utter destruction. He had no foothold in the swamp of sin. He could not stand upright without a foundation to support the weight of his efforts. He was utterly hopeless. Think of trying to climb, I don't know, uh, a mountain that has been covered in slip and slide material and it's raining dish soap and your life depends on it. That everything you hope for, everything that is good, is at the top of this hill that you can make zero progress up. Real life, life to the fullest, is at the starting point and the place to where you can make zero progress towards it. And the craziest thing happens. This perfect God stooped down from the office of heaven and took time to lift him out of his situation. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, it goes on. It says, God does not stop with one act of radical, undeserving, and scandalous mercy, but he continues to love and lead David with a list of blessings that are too numerous to count or even recall. Um, I was reading through Spurgeon's commentary, and um, this is just something he mentions, and I want to share it with you. It says, creation... Providence and redemption teem with wonders as the sea with life. Our special attention is called by this passage to the marvels which cluster around the cross and flash from it. The accomplished redemption achieves many ends and encompasses a variety of different designs. The outgoings of the atonement are too numerous to conceive. The influence Influences of the cross reach further than the beams of the sun. Wonders of grace beyond all enumeration take their rise from the cross. Adoption, pardon, justification, and a long chain of godlike miracles of love proceed from it. I don't want to move on too quickly from this, and this is something that Charles points out. We know that the price God paid in this process was exceedingly costly. He paid for the salvation of this wicked man with the suffering of his innocent son. It was the lying down of the life of Jesus, the rock of ages, that gave God, sorry, that gave David and all men and women a place to find rest, a place to stand upright and to truly live. This is why saved people sing praise. In Christ, we have a secure and immovable kindness that is there to help us stand in every circumstance of life. On the rock of Christ, we find rest 
from our slipping, vision from his light, purpose and hope beyond all comprehension, and the kindness of God towards sinful humans like us is too great to recount. Nothing can pluck us from his hand. He is faithful to finish every work that he has begun, including the shaping and forming of me and you. Church, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. God has seen everything in your heart, everything in your mind, and life, and he has purposefully adopted each and every one of you as his own child through the blood of Christ and the seal of his spirit. He has made you completely welcomed and secure in his presence from the moment of your salvation onto eternity. You are justified and you are his. This is why saved people sing praise. This is why we proclaim the work in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Where do we proclaim? Uh, In this passage, we see in verses 9 and 10 how it talks about how we proclaim to everyone in the great assembly. You see, the gospel isn't just for salvation. It is the remedy that we apply to every situation. If you intend to make no more mistakes after your salvation, the Bible says you're deceived and you're going to need the gospel again and again. This is one of the places that we proclaim it. We're doing it now together, reminding one another of the power of the gospel. But there's something interesting here. It's just in verse 3, but I also want to bring out Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13 that Nick touched on last week. It says uh, that we also proclaim in the presence of people yet to believe in Jesus. In verse 3, it says, he gave me a new song to sing. It's a hymn of praise to our God. And then it kind of says this. Many, many people will see and fear in the Lord, and they'll put their trust in him. It speaks of proclamation. Or in Psalm 51, verse 12 and 13, it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Mercy Commons, we have an unreal privilege of pushing back darkness and advancing God's restorative kingdom with our praises. This is a a poetic psalm, and it's more experiential than it is descriptive, but this is one of the most powerful things that you can do to lift the gaze of a discouraged person in the body. It is also a practice that brings a lamp into the lives of those who, who cannot see because of the darkness of sin that has overwhelmed them. It strengthens the legs of those standing on the rock, and it lights the path to those trapped in the bog. We proclaim to one another, and we proclaim to those yet to encounter Christ. Point 1C, how do we proclaim? And this is uh, very practical, and there's so much I would love to talk about this. And I hate it when, um, I hate it when you're standing in line at Starbucks and you remember the sermon, but you have no idea what to do with it. You're like, that's, that's great theology, but like, down here, right? Like, what do I do with that? And these are just two practical pointers. Uh, one came from Porterbrook. This is a church planning prep course that Jacqueline and I took. Nick led it. It was phenomenal. I highly recommend it. This is what actually inspired the creation of CrossFit Meta. And one of the simple things that they talked about is a three-strand cord for life on mission. 
And these are the three things that you do as you exist as a compelling community on mission. One, make friends with people that don't know Jesus. It doesn't say pretend to be their friends, be selfishly motivated by the thought of them coming to faith and totally disregard them if they don't seem interested. No, become friends with people that don't believe in Christ. Step two, introduce them to your community, right? Bring others with you. Maybe someone who has something in common or just take Saxon, he gets along with everybody. (laughs) And the third thing is demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. If someone who doesn't know Jesus is mixed together with the church, that should come naturally. If we're doing the one another's together, that is demonstrating the gospel. And at some point, they should ask a question, even if you're not on the bolder side. They should ask a question that the answer is literally just the gospel. So this is one practical pointer in how we proclaim second thing, leading through weakness. Let me give you just a story. This happens to me mostly with men that are neighbors. It's happened three times. First time it happened, neighbor Brian on Norman Street. It's probably Monday, and he's like, dude, how was your weekend? And I'm like, oh, it was pretty good. Yeah, and I was like, oh, we did this, this. Oh, I got in that fight with Jacqueline. I was really rude to her. And I go, yeah, it was pretty good, man. We did this, that, and that. Except, dude, I blew it, man. Like, I was super rude to Jacqueline. We got in this fight, and it was all my fault. And, and they always say the same thing. Bet you slept on the couch that night. I've never slept on the couch. I said, actually, that's never happened. And they kind of tilt their head, and I say, you know, the... The crazy thing is my wife's a Christian, and she knows what she has been forgiven for, and so it makes it much easier for her to extend forgiveness to me when I make my mistakes. I've never slept on the couch one night of my marriage. And their jaw drops, and they kind of look sideways. And what I love about those moments, and it's every time this has happened, it's opened a door Right? And I think one of the things that we're learning from Pete Scazzaro and just the, the, how the Bible talks about the humility that Christians sh- should hold, in that moment, what I'm telling him, I don't think I'm better than you. Uh, he already knows that I'm a believer. And so just being able to say, like, here's one of my biggest mistakes in the most recent history. Like, just, just this was this weekend. Like, there you go. I'm not perfect. It disarms people. And it, it welcomes questions for us to communicate the gospel, and so we can do that by leading through our brokenness. So we've looked at why we proclaim, where we proclaim, and how we proclaim. What makes our vocal cords cold and quiet? This is something that I've been thinking about for quite some time. You see, Mercy, Mercy Commons was, was birthed out of an idea that comes from Jesus' incarnation and his dwelling with man. We wanted to be a community that just didn't live in Fullerton, separated from its brokenness, but like Christ, we would indwell this city and live as physical representations of Jesus and bringing restoration to the city through the transformative power of the gospel demonstrated and proclaimed. One of the verses that we held on to, it's from the Old Testament, but it really was our war cry, and it's Exodus 33, 15, 16, and it says, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not lead us out from here. For how, for how then can it be known that your people and I have found favor in your sight unless you go with us? How else will we be distinguishable from all the other people on the face of the earth? Face of the earth? Jesus' incarnational presence echoes this passage, and this is what spurred us on to plant this beautiful community among other things. But I, I believe... And hear me out, guys. 
due to the evidence in my own proclamation and what I see around me in our community and our society that we have lost some momentum in this mission. We have stalled a little bit in our calling. And here are three things that I believe based off of scripture and observation that scare, distract, and stifle us. There are three things that are either mentioned explicitly in David's psalm or kind of connected to loosely. Uh, in verse 4, he talks about how the blessed, <clears throat> that they trust in God and not look to the proud, to proud men and those caught up in idolatry. The phrase proud men can be translated as those who trust in the strength of man. And when we place too much confidence in the plans, goals, and ambitions of men, we can also grow in fear of them, of their rejection, their disapproval, or even their challenge. Uh, and also idolatry, by definition, is the thing that distracts us from our mighty God. And the third and final thing that I want to talk about, um, it's not mentioned directly in this text, but it's one of shame. So the fear of man, this is when we see an opportunity for proclamation, but due to political correctness pressures or thoughts of rejection or challenges, we choose to say nothing. Shame, just in prayer and from personal experience, not recently, I believe that some people think that, you know, if you've made a mistake that you're not fit to proclaim the gospel, and I believe that's one of the things that also hold us back from sharing the word of God. And worldly distractions, man, this is, this is one that I think I have been most guilty of. Um, I want to reference a life verse here that I think really highlights some of the struggles that we see in America in a, in a consumer-driven culture and a culture that literally to a degree assigns value based off of um, possessions and wealth, but it's 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 12, and I just want to read it to you and just listen. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, and so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food, and clothing, with these we shall be content. I don't know about you, that is very challenging. It's why it's a life verse, I come back to it often. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life, which you are called. I believe that it is very difficult to not be distracted by the temptation of wealth. I think God gave me this life verse. It's not my only one, that'd be sad, but uh, as a constant reminder. Um, but for me, guys, more than material possessions, I'm good at checking myself with those things. 
I share my most expensive stuff. Uh, I don't treat it like it's my own. But for me recently, I need to confess this to you. I've, I've become far too concerned with the behaviors of government. I was talking to Sean about this on Friday, and he was checking in with me for good reason. He was asking me some questions about it. And just as we were talking, I had the revelation that for some reason I was acting if God was unable or unaware of what concerned me. And I was living as if it was my responsibility to correct the issue God was neglectfully absent about. I was trusting in the strength of my own flesh and proud men. The remedy is here. Um, It says, but let all of those who seek to, that seek you, wasn't seeking God in this area, be joyful, I was not joyful, and glad was not glad because of what you have done. said, let those who count on you say, let's try that again. Let those who count on you to save them always say, the Lord is great. Guys, we can be distracted by worldly issues, not that we should be uninvolved or not care. Um, shame can, can stifle us at times, and the fear of man can make us, make us quiet. So what is our remedy? How do we warm up our vocal cords to be ready to participate in advancing God's kingdom through the proclamation of his gospel? Point number three, how to warm up our vocal cords. If these previous issues were some of the common issues that cause our vocal cords to get cold and quiet, think of these truths as the remedy to warm them. For the fear of man, the Bible says, fear the Lord, not man. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord and needeth not the approval of man. The other thing I would encourage you, and I'm so grateful that the Spirit of God brought this to our attention this morning, the other thing is we need to love our neighbor. We need to love our neighbor enough to be courageous and hope-filled for their eternal well-being. Guys, uh, love overcomes fear. If you've ever had a child or someone you care about in danger... Fear disappears. There's been some scary things that I've literally sprinted towards because my son needed my help. I mean, you guys have probably watched us on Instagram. We do some crazy things, so I've had a lot of opportunities to race towards them. The other thing I want to talk to you about, about 1 Corinthians 13, 7, the thing that Sean brought up this morning, it says, love always hopes. The Greek word there is alipi. Um, whatever. Uh, it's, it, it's used 32 times in the New Testament. The, world, the, word expresses, the word expresses more than a wish or desire, but a confident belief in the unseen. And I have a, just a recent illustration that I'd like to share with you. My boys right now are at a church camp, Augustine and Hudson. Um, I am very confident that Hudson has been touched by God, he's been baptized, he's growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and Augie, I'm kind of skeptical of. (laughs) My dad's already told me like years ago, he's like, watch out for that one. So I know they're going away to this camp for four days. Do you know how much hope I have right now? Well, God's gonna do in them what he's gonna deposit in their hearts that is gonna transform their lives? It's going to 
teach Augie about who he is, that, that hand that is going to lift him out of that pit? It's because I love him. The Bible says, love your neighbors. Can we be hopeful in love? Can we do this in a way that we're confident in the thing that we can't see yet? Love casts out fear. It overcomes it. And love hopes. That is our remedy to the fear of man. Distractions. Let me challenge you with this. And this is very difficult. And I'm telling you, I'm not one that has completely arrived. That's why I revisit 1 Timothy 6 to remind myself of the distractions that come with living in America in this age. But it says, well, here's my advice. Um, Be content with godliness food for today and clothes on your back and treat everything else you currently own, hope to receive and experience as lesser value than an eternal human being. People are more important than things. And shame, guys, this one is so easy to talk about. In this very psalm, we see the man who had more sins than the hairs on his head. The man that we talked about last week and this week of his committing of adultery and God uses David, the dude we talked about earlier that needed a lot of help. God uses him to prophesy in this psalm about the one who truly would have the will of God transcribed on his heart. The one who is written about in every book of scripture. This needy, murdering, Adulterer was used by God to do some serious proclamation. If you are waiting for a day when you are free from sin so that you are qualified to proclaim the good news of God, you will never proclaim the good news of God. The Bible says that he who says he is without sin is deceived. It is the righteousness of God that justifies us, not our own behavior. Jesus would not have had to die on the cross if we could do this perfectly. And finally, the the key to effective proclamation. We observe that those who are aware of their salvation find joy in proclaiming God's praises. We see that Uh, We are called to do this within and outside the great assembly of believers. We have seen that our remedy to distraction and fears are resolved by the truth that we are immovably standing on. But what is it that makes proclamation highly effective? (laughs) The key to effective proclamation has a lot to do with archery. I'm going to come back to that. I've been studying a book um, by Loveless, and it's, it's, it basically studies the, the history of revival and renewal within the church, starting with like first century monasticism all the way through the Reformation, the first great awakening, the second great awakening. And it talks about what was happening in these areas, what theological things they focused on, how that produced change in these communities, and even what social movements happened out of this. I'm not sure if you know this, but after the Second Great Awakening, um, God touched William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. I actually stood in front of the church that they met in a few years ago, and 
It was the move of God and him coming upon his people that led to the abolition of slavery uh, in the UK and the United States. And he talks about the key ingredient that was common in every single one of these revivals. And it's, it's, it's incredibly simple, but I just want to share this with you. He says, at the center point of every teaching in all of these historical movements, the thing that became clear was justification. That when people radically understood the things that we have been talking about all morning long, partnered with, check this out, an active participation in their sanctification. When people understood how loved they were by God and just committed to growing in their repentance and their transformation, what happens is that the church becomes so glorious that those around them take notice and begin to place their faith in Christ. Revival starts within the church walls. It starts in my heart and in your heart. What do I mean by the key to effective proclamation is like archery? And this was just a picture God gave me a while ago. And I saw this bow. It was made of wood, had a string on it. And I saw an arrow get put in it. And then as it pulled back, it said, this is worship. This is understanding that God is our Father. And he is unchanging, that he has seen every mistake you will ever make and ever have made. He sees your imperfections and he loves you and nothing can stop him from doing that. That we are secure, that the rock that we stand on is immovable when we are fully accepted. And as we worship, it draws back this bow and it said, this is mission. Without reveling in the radical and scandalous grace of God, there is no momentum. When we don't fully believe that God fully loves us, there is no drawing back of this bow. When we don't revel in the fact that God is with us and among us and loves us and cares for us, has purpose for us, even in our suffering, he is making something good out of us for our good and the benefit of others, there is no momentum behind it. And so church... Our own personal devotion to worship is the thing that transforms this world. You know, I started this process and I need to land. Ben, you can actually join me up here. I was so excited about proclamation. So excited about mission. That's why we opened CrossFit Meta. Some people have come to faith that I'm super stoked about it. And I just noticed our mission, my mission, other people's evangelism, it just wasn't that effective. And what I've realized by studying books like Loveless's book and looking at church history, it's actually when we are so brilliant and beautiful is what changes the world around us. So what I'm not asking is for us to be introspective, but it is, it is as if that when we revel so deeply in God's generosity and kindness that it causes the church to worship, that the worship gets so magnificent that that is the very thing that God uses to open the ears of the transgressors and causes them to see and fear and trust in the Lord. And so guys, this morning, I want us to do a slightly awkward exercise. 
um, we are actually going to sing this next song a cappella. I appreciate the keys. That's helpful. Just a little sound, right? Here's the thing. Worship gets, uh, not worship. Proclamation can be awkward. I talked to a bunch of people about doing this. I'm like, is this okay? It's going to be awkward. And it's like, why? I'm like, this is how I feel every time before I share the gospel. Still. I'm like, man, what are they going to think? Man, it's going to get weird for a second. And you just got to go in there anyways. Got to tell your neighbor how you blew it with your wife. Right? And so I want us to practice in what it's going to be like that there might not be beautiful music behind it. There actually may be a bunch of people that you know are going to disagree with you. And so maybe the sound of someone hearing you sing is a little awkward. That's okay. That's what we need to grow in. We don't fear man, we fear the Lord. And at some point, the band is going to come in, and I just want to tell you that's how mission works. It's awkward at first, but at some point, it gets radically glorious. At times, I, can, I swear I can hear angels rejoicing. The reality is, guys, the, the harvest is plentiful. I'm so gre- grateful that Jesus said that. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he sends out more workers. I've been praying, and I want you to partner with me in prayer, that he would continue to send me and you into this harvest for the benefit of others, the glory of his name, and the advancement of his kingdom. So let's sing. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.